Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. I don't typically cry while preparing for these interviews. But today's guest and her book and her unbelievable redemptive spirit and faith did exactly that for me. I think today as you listen in, it may stir emotions deep within you as well, my friends. Michelle Horde is no stranger to tragedy. She started her professional career as a producer on America's Most Wanted, where she came face to face with the unthinkable on a daily basis. But when it happened in her own family, Michelle's entire life crashed down around her. Her beloved seven-year-old daughter, Gabrielle, was murdered. And she was murdered by her father. Today, with compassion and with insight, Michelle is going to join us for a raw and a wildly powerful conversation around how resilience and hope and defined faith can lead to a powerful and a positive transformation, even in the midst of our darkest hours. You're going to leave this conversation with a compassionate blueprint on how to harness your inner strength. You're going to leave with the tools that you need to reclaim the power of your story, and you will leave radically inspired by this wonderful woman and her incredible journey through life. And near the end of the conversation, Michelle is going to read a short excerpt of her book. It's called The Other Side of Yet. It was released on Tuesday of this week. It is a powerful read, and it's going to be a remarkable share when she gets there. So my friends, without further ado, please join me in allowing our newest friend and one of my newest heroes to join us on the Live Inspired podcast. Her name is Michelle Horde. Michelle, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and hear your voice and see you. And you're talking to me because I'm a fan. So thank you for having me. Well, I am a profound fan of yours. And as I said in the introduction, I don't typically cry as I'm getting ready, ready for interviews. I've gotten ready for several hundred, probably several thousand now. This is the first book, the first story, the first message and first messenger who has moved me deeply to tears. But not only tears of sorrow, tears ultimately of joy and hope and redemption and, and faith. And so 
Uh, we'll get through that story. We'll get into those tears here in a moment. But when you have an opportunity to introduce yourself, how do you respond to that? I am um, a creative spirit. And that has manifested in many ways in my personal and professional life. And I like to think of myself as a hope warrior and that I am willing to fight to see where the sun is coming up next. Mm. So where the sun is coming up next suggests that the sun set at some point. So we're going to go back not only to when it's set, but we're going to go back even farther than that. You've got an amazing family, like just a, a remarkable family from your grandfather, who I've read a little bit about and done a little bit of recon on to your father, who's remarkable and to your mother and, and others. So paint a picture for us of what your childhood was like. So I feel like I grew up in the quintessential American dream, um, African-American from the Midwest. So shout out to all the Midwest folks. Um, I was born in Gary, Indiana and was raised in Michigan. It's amazing when you think about how close we are still to a completely different world, right? So my parents grew up in an era of Jim Crow and segregation and things that to me, you know, seem like things in a book, but literally my parents grew up in. And so, um, my parents met when my mom was in college and in the small town of Terre Haute, Indiana, where my dad uh, was in high school. And somehow he used his high school charm on this, this older woman and, you know, was able to get her attention. He matriculated at Indiana State University. And then after they got married, by the way, on my dad's 20th birthday, my grandmother had to sign. My dad flunked out of college. Oh, and there's a story that speaks to who he is in the work ethic that um, I grew up hearing about that, you know, my mother was a teacher, she was working on her master's degree, he would get out of bed every morning when his wife did and just get dressed in a suit and just walk around, because he was not going to be in the house when his wife was out earning a living. And eventually that got him to Ben Becker's shoes, which was a local shoe place, and he was allowed to be a stock boy at first. Um, and eventually worked his way up to men's shoes, but they were not willing to let him work in women's shoes because they didn't want him touching white women's feet. And something which to us sounds incredulous and crazy. Again, we're talking about the, the mid to late 60s. I mean, this is not 100 years ago. So it's hard for us to understand. And to speak to the um, subject of integration, my father went to one of the first integrated high schools um, in his area. And so you know, girls he went to school with, white girls would come with their mom and say, can Noel wait on us? And so eventually they had to let him sell shoes and be on the floor. And that began a career that skyrocketed. So as a small child, I remember going from a one-bedroom apartment to a two-bedroom apartment to our first house and literally visiting the spot in Michigan where like the hole was dug and the concrete was poured. You know, my parents were so proud to own their first house to eventually, by the time I was in high school and we moved to Connecticut, my father is the president and COO of Nine West. And at one time, you know, the biggest non-athletic shoe company in, in, in the States. So our joke, my brother and my joke as a kid was that George Jefferson was our dad. You know, he, he danced like George Jefferson, which is a whole nother, uh, you know, that there may be trauma there that I won't talk about today, but, uh, 
But, you know, really that American dream story of if you work hard, if you're passionate, he's a preacher's kid. I'm the granddaughter of a preacher's kid. So faith was always important, but those were the cornerstones. And, you know, it wasn't until sometimes it's not until you get away from your family that you really appreciate. It wasn't until I went to college and I went to a historically black college, Howard University, where I had friends who didn't have parents that had the backgrounds my parents had, who weren't educated perhaps, or or didn't have a father who was in corporate America. Um, and I joke sometimes I got an MBA at the dinner table, you know, just listening to dad come home from work and talk about the day and talk about decisions he made. And, and just through osmosis, the information and the knowledge that my brother and I were able to glean from it have, you know, it have just been a tremendous blessing. So after you and I wrap up this interview later on today, I will leave the office and head out to visit my mom and dad who reside in the exact same house they raised me in. Wow. So I'm 45 years old and mom and dad have lived in that house years before I, I moved in. You, on the other hand, moved around quite a bit as a little girl. And so I'm just Absolutely. curious. Absolutely. You got the MBA at the dinner table, but the university was, was moving around, man. So Absolutely. How did that affect you? How did, how did moving school to school, town to town, state to state impact your life? Yeah, I sort of joke that I'm a corporate brat, right? We hear about army brats a lot. You know, it, it's again, in, in the moment, you're just, you're, you're living your life, right? You have nothing to compare it to. I wasn't really aware of it. However, I, I always hated change and liked new things and learning new things. Go figure. So what I, I think happened that I didn't realize was I developed the ability to be agile, to change, to pivot, to read a room. Even though it was hard for me, I didn't have a choice. I, I felt like there wasn't a choice. So, you know, what was I going to do? Stop my feet and say, I'm not switching. I'm not going to the fifth elementary school. You, you do what you have to do, right? So I think early on that with that sort of Midwest tough grit of you do what you got to do. You don't complain about it. You're grateful for what you have is what stuck with me. Now, my father, if this was a call-in show, would call in right now and say, whoa, 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 tell him about the part where we moved to Connecticut and you made my life torture um, <laughs> because you were a teenager and you were miserable and you were pretty sure that this job for dad in Connecticut was to ruin your life and your first boyfriend back in Michigan. Um, so I'll cop to that. But having said that, you know, I look at so much of my family that stayed in the Midwest and we were the ones that left Indiana and then left the Midwest. I'm fascinated to hear about folks who have the same phone number at home that, you know, they had 30 or 40 years ago because I don't have that. I don't have that literal home base. So I think I had to create home base inside. And because I didn't have an extended family around me, I had my parents and, and my brother, family, as we say now, in terms of friends, I, I created that for myself as well. So perhaps those are some of the ways. Beautiful answer. And, and speaking of family, one of your little friends was a little fellow named Willie. Yes. And I was surprised to read about Willie. So talk about Willie, what connected you to him and, and how ultimately that relationship affected longer term, your, your outlook on life. Yeah. So I was in the first grade. I was a year ahead of myself. I was always the tallest kid in the class, even, even as the youngest. And I think my initial attraction to Willie was the first grade little girl crush. And he was taller than me. So like, forget it. That's everything, right? Like that's still everything. But what I remember was that he was kind. I was kind of a nerdy kid. I was quiet. I was shy. I had these horrible buck teeth. And my mom was a teacher at the school. So you want to talk about a recipe for, 
you know, the, the goofy kid who's always the teacher's pet and citizen of the week. I was that kid. Childhood memories, it's just a rush of almost like flipping a book. So there's what I remember and reality. What I remember was knowing him in the first grade, him being a good friend. And on a slushy March day, some kids teasing me and making fun of me and Willie defending me. And in that defense of me, I remember him getting hit in the head. And the next thing I remember was Memorial Day at school, not literally Memorial Day, but you know, we were making little wreaths and drawing art projects in Willie's memory. And so for so long in my head, I thought I killed him, not literally, but, but this was the first loss. It was a huge loss. Um, he was my best friend at the time. Um, you know, like little kids do, I would write in hearts, you know, Michelle plus Willie and put his last name behind my name. <laughs> and it wasn't until years later when I was in, I think the fourth grade that I brought him up and my mom was shocked and said, you still remember that? And I said, yes, he died because he tried to help me. And she said, no, sweetie, Willie was sick. Mm. He was a sick little boy. And I think, you know, I struggled, frankly, with even telling that story in the book because I worshiped the ground my mom walked on and, and, I, and it was in no way to disparage her. I think it speaks to a couple of things. It speaks to the time, you know, we're talking about the, the early to mid seventies. And I don't think we talked as openly with children and as transparently as, as we do now. And I think it also speaks to this deep seated fear of losing people that I loved and feeling like the worst could happen. And that worst morphed as I got older, um, for sure, um, with, with my mom and fear of losing my mom. Um, but that, that, that was that impact for me at that early age. Well, since you brought it up and you talked about life morphing and you talked about your admiration and love for your mother, part of your journey means that you are going to ultimately lose your mother far before what we would have wished her time was. How did your mother's early untimely death affect you? It's the second greatest shock of my life. My mother's mother was dying of cancer and the irony, and, and I will say blessing is that because my mother was mother's mother was dying of cancer, I was extra attached to my mom. I went with my mom to Texas where her sister lived and where my grandmother was doing chemo at uh, MD Anderson. I was, I wanted to be close to my mom. I understood because it had been my nightmare as a little girl, e even as a young adult, I would wake up of nightmares afraid that my mom was gone and call her. Mm. Um, and she would joke, girl, I'm not going anywhere. So that was such a fear for me. And I knew she was struggling, certainly with losing her mom. One Saturday morning, February 19th of 1994, my father calls me and I remember looking at my clock, it was 10, 12 AM. And there was a silent voice in this quiet voice that my, my dad doesn't have a quiet voice. And he said, she's gone. And so of course, my first thought was, oh my gosh, how's mom doing? Yeah. Right. And then I heard what he had truly said which was that my mom was gone and he had come home from work the night before and found my mother, my 50 year old mother, perfectly healthy, never drank, never smoked. You know, it, in my snarky teen days, I would, I would call her Sandra D behind her back. 
only behind her back. <laughs> Not stupid. Um, but that she was gone. And it took him until, and I, as a parent, you know, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, he walks in, he finds his healthy, beautiful wife and he called his parents first. He called his sister first and it took him till the next morning to get the strength up to call his kids. And so he called me first and because of my relationship with my brother and my relationship with my dad, before he could call my brother, I called my brother because I felt like he shouldn't have to do it twice. You know, my mother was the center of my universe. You know, she was beautiful. Um, she was, she was feminine. I felt like a bull in a China shop. I can look now and see her in me, but certainly as an awkward teenager and growing up with braces and being taller than everyone else, I didn't see those things. And it was a defining moment in my life for sure. Um, and knowing that losing her meant that losing my grandmother was, was literally imminent months away. And my grandmother's cancer, which had started as lung cancer, spread to her brain. In our last visits, she thought I was my mom. You know, she would look at my hands and we have a mole in the exact same place on our right hand. And what I couldn't do was, was tell her the truth, right? There was this kind of emotional faith foundational boot camp Mm. that I went through in my early 20s. And I tell people when I think about faith, I think about a really good insurance policy and you don't really, you don't really get it until you have to cash it in. For me to lose at 24, there was nothing that could have been more traumatic or painful than losing my mom. And somehow I was still here. Somehow I had to figure out how to still go. I spoke at her service. I wrote her obituary. I grieved and, and, and still grieve her loss and all of the you know, it's now been 28 years. So the irony now is I've lived without her longer than I lived with her. And yet, because of how I was raised, even at her service, I said, I'm grateful I had my mother for 24 years. You know, some people can have moms that live a hundred years. They, my, I had my mother and what God gave me. So she gave me that gratitude. She, she instilled that gratitude in me that even in that moment that felt so dark and so so hard to comprehend. I knew to be grateful. You, you shared so beautifully and honestly, understand that you've been writing your entire life. This is not new. You've, you've been a journaler. You've been a journalist your entire life. When did you realize mm-hmm. that you wanted to make that your career? I knew I loved writing because I, I probably would have decided I wanted to be an actress or something more in the creative realm had I not come from Midwest hardworking, how's that going to pay the bills, folks, right? (laughs) So by high school, I was writing for the school newspaper. I was working in all the school productions. I became a broadcast journalism major in college. Originally, I thought I wanted to be on air. And then my first internship, um, I'm running scripts back to this place called the control room. And I like the word, you know, control room. (laughs) That sounds like a good place to be, right? And I get back there and it's a bunch of white guys. And there was always a young woman who looked like me in front of the camera. And I realized there wasn't anybody that looked like me behind the camera usually. And so it made me want to understand the images, how people chose stories, how they chose who to interview, 
you know, going to Howard University and being at this historically Black college where you're just steeped in this sense of not just history, but responsibility made me say, I have to do work that's going to matter. And I want to focus on positive portrayals of of people that look like me. So instead of going into the reporting route, um, the on-air route, um, and I think a piece of it too, which is why what God has chosen to do with me, you know, I know God has a sense of humor. I was a shy little kid. Like I cried in my mom's skirts, you know, I, I, I kind of didn't want people to recognize me. So, so being behind the scenes, writing, being a producer was much, much more comfortable than the thought of being in front of the camera. So that, that was the choice that I made. Talk about the, the choice on where you decided to take your talents after graduating from college. That's kind of funny because I started off originally in a part-time job that paid minimum wage on the assignment desk of a local station uh, with no benefits. It became clear to me that while my parents were incredibly supportive, I was going to have to figure this out. <laughs> that 20 hours a week at minimum wage was going to be supported, but for so long. So the first job that came up in Washington, D.C. that I saw was at America's Most Wanted. Now, in some ways, it was the antithesis, right, of what I imagined for myself career-wise. I thought of myself as a highbrow journalist, um, and I certainly knew that when you're portraying the types of stories America's Most Wanted portrayed, you weren't portraying most folks in a great light, right? And it was a full-time job that paid a whopping $19,000 a year, and it came with benefits. And my thought was, I'll do it for a year, and then I'll find something else. Um, And again, speaking to us thinking we know what the plan is, and, and God having such a more powerful plan. It was a fantastic experience. I was able to focus on missing children's stories. I found that it was a job that really felt like a public service. John Walsh was so devoted to the cause of missing and exploited children, to helping families, that you weren't another person from the press there that was trying to get a sound bite. You really were brought in by the family. And so I found myself at 22, 23 years old, being the one inside the house when primetime 48 hours, all of those news magazines at the time were outside and the family saying, you know, it's 60 minutes on the phone. Should I, should I do this interview to which I would say yes, but it was an extraordinary first experience because if you didn't have it naturally, it certainly taught you empathy and you were on the front lines of the worst moment in people's lives. And I would watch these mothers, Polly Class, which was a huge story in the 90s. She was on the, I can still see her face on the cover of People magazine. I remember sitting with her mother and this hollow look in mom's eyes that I saw in so many mothers' eyes and wondering, how is she doing this? How, how, How is she doing this? How is she able to talk to me? How is she able to go on television? You would hear, and, and again, town to town, story to story people saying, this doesn't happen here. You know, this doesn't happen here. The polyclass, Petaluma, California, home of the movie American Graffiti. I mean, you can fill in the blanks town by town. And unfortunately, the vast majority of the stories ended, unfortunately, the way Polly's did, which is that she was not alive. There were those rare bursts of miracle where a child was found still alive, but most of the time they weren't. The piece that I picked up from that part of my journey was that at their core, people have this 
unbelievable ability to survive. John Walsh always talked about survivors versus victims, which I loved. So because it, it gives you the power, right? Victim Victimization takes power away. Being a survivor gives you back the power. And so speaking that language of survival early on, it, it was an invaluable, I think, ethical, life, journalistic, empathic job experience. For me, I, I, uh, I stumbled into a career for a couple of years in my mid-20s as being a hospital chaplain. And it was a total mm-hmm. stumble job that led me there. But I, the little pager would go off and I'd end up in these patients' rooms while a patient's coding. It was a children's mm-hmm. hospital. So we're working with the, the sickest of the sick. And frequently, it's not ending up in the way that we desire and pray for, of course. But afterwards, I was always amazed. You mentioned it being at the table. I was always amazed, essentially, being at the table with these families and looking around at the closest family members at the most intimate moment in their lives, thinking, man, I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. Like one of these things doesn't belong, man. And it is me. And I knew it. And I stayed there anyway, because I thought it was the call at the time, the mission to, to love these families. But I never felt like I belonged. And so I'm just curious, as you were at these kitchen tables and 60 minutes is calling, the, the worst of the worst is happening in these families' lives. Did, did you feel like, you know what, I, I, I do belong here. And here's why. I think I felt like I had to figure out how to belong because they needed me because they didn't see a 23-year-old kid who didn't want to work at America's Most Wanted, who like protested in college, you know, and was a fan of public enemy and fight the power, right? They saw John Walsh. They saw John Walsh. And so I wasn't coming in as young Michelle. I was coming in representing this man who was a symbol for justice and rights and you know, this horrific idea of your child being snatched away, the worst nightmare of every child, of every parent, right? So even though, you know, and I remember older colleagues saying, this is a good job for you, kid, because you don't have kids yet. You know, like it's, 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 it's a rough job if you have kids. I did not feel like I belong. And I felt like I I had to be what they needed me to be. Mm. If that makes sense. It's perfect sense. And by the way, I eventually retired my role when my children showed up because it was just too hard to see what happened and then go home and see my, my baby or my babies. So uh, the advice you received, I I understand that in college, I met a girl who would change my life. I fell in love with her on day one and it only took her like four and a half years to fall back in love with me. But in the meantime, we became dear friends. Her name is Elizabeth Grace. I call her Beth and today I'm married to her. Mm-hmm. you've had a friend and then a dear friend and then eventually even more than that a guy named Neil would, would you talk about that relationship with uh, your future husband mm-hmm. so my parents uh, started a nonprofit foundation when I was in college uh, that created scholarship opportunities and we had an annual gala and so my brother brought his uh, RA home from school with him to the annual gala good looking guy, great smile, great dimples. Um, My age, um, my brother's a few years younger than me. I was probably 21. He was 21 or 22. There was an instant attraction. But at the time he was finishing school, I was in that first job in Washington, DC and four to five hours away was way too far 
to try to figure anything out, right? And so we became we became good friends. And this will totally date me, but but I joked when we started dating seriously that we were like the black when Harry met Sally, because you know we kept in touch, we talked for hours, we were really good friends. We talked about what we wanted for our lives. We talked about our crappy relationships to each other. Um, and then eventually, um, almost a decade later, I had moved to New York and he was home in New York. And suddenly, you know, I, I don't know that it was so much like a light came from the sky and said, oh my gosh, he's the one. I don't know if he felt that way. I think it was a combo of more than anything, I wanted to get married and have kids. Like I wanted to be a mom more than I wanted to be a wife. And this was someone who whose parents got divorced when he was in high school. He was very traumatized by it and wanted nothing more than to create a family. And foundationally, this is someone that met my mom. You know, he, he was around when my mom was alive, which was a big deal to me. My mom liked him. Now she didn't like, she didn't like him for me. We weren't together, right? She, she, she thought he was a good guy. That was enough. We got married in our late thirties. My family was thrilled for me, his family was thrilled for us. And, you know, I grew up in a home where I was blessed to see parents who were clearly each other's best friend. And I remember my mom saying, listen, the other stuff, the, you know, the googly eyes, the whatever over time can go away or comes and goes, but that, that friend that you're really close to and that you can trust, that's the most important thing. And so that's how I entered into my marriage. Ooh. Well, you enter, enter into it with all the bells and whistles and dimples. Life is good. You entered in, as you mentioned a moment ago, in your late 30s. Mm-hmm. And you mo- mentioned even before that, that your dream was not yet to be a wife, of course, but to be a mom. I just mm-hmm. want to be a mom. And yet you struggled mm-hmm. with that dream becoming a reality mm-hmm. for a long time. Have, having that baby was a difficult deal. And it, I think it's one of the things that made August 2nd. I know I'm going to get the year. God bless you. <laughs> August 2nd, what? 2009. August 2nd, 2009, all the more remarkable. So so talk about what made August 2nd, 2009 so special. So I will never forget standing at the edge of our steps with my pregnancy test and my husband looking at me and coming up to meet me at the steps and us crying that it was a positive pregnancy test. My daughter, Gabrielle, was born on August 2nd. Um, eight, two, and she was eight pounds and two ounces. So her paternal grandmother said, I'm going to play the numbers with eight, two, when I leave the hospital. <laughs> I like your paternal grandmother. I love New York. I love New York. She was born at 9 59 PM after 26 hours. Um, and because it was a New York city hospital, although I did have an epidural, it had run out. Um, by the time she decided it was time to show up and they couldn't get back to me. So my original romantic dream of, of natural childbirth, which I'd said to hell to about hour seven actually came, <laughs> actually happened. And, you know, I had this remarkably easy pregnancy, this remarkably healthy, beautiful little girl. I look at pictures of myself in those early days and beyond, you know, sleep deprivation. I have this dreamy childlike glaze over my eyes because there was nothing that I wanted more. Like this was it. There was nothing that I wanted more than to be able to have a child. Well, this little girl, I think is part of why you had that dreamy, joyful glance of childlike Mm -hmm. awe in your eyes because she 
she was the embodiment of it, as you wrote. Uh, joyful, love to sing, love to laugh, super smart, love to dance. Just celebrate a little bit of your daughter's life with us. What was she like? Effervescent is the word that initially comes to mind for me. She was bubbly. It was like her little feet didn't touch the ground. She skipped, she played. She was a little bossy at times, which, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, she was my kid. I have to cop to that a little bit. Um, <laughs> but she just loved life. She loved making people laugh. What I didn't really understand at the time, um, but I'm so grateful for now, was she was an incredibly kind, sensitive child. She cared about children who perhaps were not popular children. She cared about the kids who were sitting on the buddy bench and needed someone to play with. And, you know, seven-year-olds don't come home from school and say, hey, mom, guess what I did today? I, I stopped this kid from getting bullied or I, I, you know, I became the first friend to this girl. I'm in our Girl Scout troop that people were ignoring, but that's a little girl that she, she, you know, that's who she was as a child. I felt so incredibly gifted, not just to be able to have a child and to have her, but to feel like I was responsible for raising um, and caring literally and figuratively this beautiful spirit that God clearly had such plans for. She dragged around a little doll everywhere she was ever, ever vescent. Little yes. doll, Barbara. Barbara. Yes. Great for a baby doll. Talk talk about Barbara and, and uh, Gabby Bear's infatuation with Barbara. Yes. So Barbara, sh she doesn't remember a time without Barbara. Santa Claus bought Barbara when she was four months old. And, you know, when I was a kid, there weren't dolls that looked like me. You know, they were either really white or really dark. Um, and Barbara was our skin tone, which, you know, again, identification, that was a big deal. She was a soft rag doll. Her name was Barbara because she had on a yellow dress and said Barbara on it, John. We weren't creative, okay? I mean, like, I didn't come up with this. You know, Barbara's not a baby doll name, right? <laughs> but what was cool about it was Gabrielle's uh, paternal grandmother's name was Barbara. So her doll became little Barbara. So we had this whole thing between, you know, there was grandma and then there was little Barbara. So Barbara went everywhere. And because I was a type A TV producer and remembered clearly the long drive home from Illinois to Michigan, the summer my brother left his security blanket back at grandma's house, there were three barbers. And so, you know, there would be a toss sometimes of behind my back to the babysitter to the washing machine. While on the other hand, you know, we bring a barber forth. Um, so there, there was not going to be a time where Barbara was away from Gabrielle's hands. So Barbara was always on hand. So you have this beautiful, effervescent child who uh, is just showing you what faithful, joyful living looks like embodied yes. right in front of you that you are leading, yes. but also learning from. Yes. And in the midst of it, you're working and your husband's working and life is happening and it's mm -hmm. getting hard. And as so often happens in relationships, it becomes fractured and then divisive, mm -hmm. and then it begins to fall apart. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to unpack all the details, but uh, eventually you move into a relationship where you, you realize this is not going to work and you're going to have to move mm -hmm. out. And eventually it's going to end in divorce. I'd, I'd like you to take it forward from there. Yeah. You know, what I'll say is I think as a woman with a daughter, what was most important to me was I was keenly aware that she was learning from me how to be in relationship. She was learning from me 
what it meant to be a mother, what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be a wife. And that, you know, the do as I say, not as I do doesn't work, right? So if, if she was not seeing me experience what I was saying, it could impact the choices she made. So beyond whatever issues I had from a marital standpoint, what was most important to me was that this little girl knew that seeking one's own peace and respect and safety and health and happiness was paramount. So I made the decision. Um, I asked for a divorce for a myriad of reasons. Um, I moved out um, as we you know, went through the proceedings. It was obviously a very difficult time. Anyone that's been through a divorce who's had a family member go through a divorce, I really do think that the trauma of divorce is understated, frankly, in all situations and how people change, how situations change, how money, how all sorts of, you know, sort of the psychological warfare that goes with it. So it was an incredibly tumultuous time. I had my prayer warriors 24 seven around the clock, just praying that we could get to a peaceful resolution for a long time, for a long time. So sometimes the resolution is the day you find out that the divorce is finalized for some couples. Mm -hmm. It's you know, maybe the, mm-hmm. maybe the battle will finally be resolved as the white flag goes up high upon both parties. Mm-hmm. Your divorce is finalized. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Well, in all honesty, it was him agreeing to sign the papers. The divorce was not finalized. The divorce was not finalized. So, so after months and months of back and forth, he finally agreed to the terms and agreed to sign the papers on June 5th of 2017. And I remember when he said he would do it, like literally leaving work, saying to my boss, I've got to get out of here. Like before he changes his mind, before, you know, getting through traffic from Midtown Manhattan to New Rochelle, New York, literally Googling, where can I find someone that can be a notary so we can just get this done? I think I swept through my, my suit and I got there, um, met him there we kind of painfully joked about having this beautiful wedding that was unceremoniously unraveling with us signing these papers, right? And we signed them. And as we left, he said to me, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything that's happened the last several months. And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All that matters is we have this beautiful little girl. We were friends first. And all that matters is that we do everything we can to co-parent. I didn't get in the car before I started crying and praising God and calling friends and saying, he signed, he signed, he signed, we're ready for next steps. The plan was the next day for me to, Gabrielle was aware we were getting a divorce, you know, to the extent that she could understand it and felt safe, she did. The next day I was to come over to the house um, after work for us to talk through next steps with her. And because we lived between two places, that evening was an evening that she was staying with her father. And so I went home, slept well, Mm. and went to work the next day. And that was the end of my life as I knew it. I mean, like I'm crying over here before we even get into how your life ended before you even knew it, because it is about to end in so many regards for you and for this pride and joy of yours. For our listeners who have not had the honor of reading the book that came out just two days ago called The Other Side, 
of yet. I love the title, by the way, the other side of yet finding light in the midst of darkness. How did your life change that day? I received a phone call um, in the afternoon, you know, moms of young children have their phones. It's like an appendage. So I always had my phone with me. And in the two minutes, I probably put it down to grab lunch while facilitating. Um, I saw my nanny's number pop up. So I quickly called her back and she was hysterical and it was clear something was very wrong. And I initially based on her reaction thought he's killed himself. He's killed himself. How am I going to explain this to Gabrielle? How am I going to? And so, you know, my, you're going through all of these thoughts and then suddenly I got this pit in my stomach and I called one of the moms who didn't work outside of the home from the school and said, did you see Gabrielle today at school? And she said, no. And I knew, I knew. And I remember like in slow motion, finding this closet, um, you know, what they call the telephone booths in these conference centers and going in there and getting on my knees and saying, God, I don't know. I don't know what I'm gonna walk into, but whatever it is, please just give me strength. And it was the longest ride of my life. A colleague came with me, drove me home. And the whole time I'm on the phone talking to family and friends, trying to get information. And at some point people stopped calling me back. And that's when I knew, that's when I really knew. Um, because certainly if it was, she's okay, she's in the hospital. Right. And I remember a couple of blocks before we got there, getting a call from a dear friend of mine, Wanda. And she said, where are you? How close are you? And I said, I'm right around the corner. And that was all she said. And as we pulled up, I saw police tape. I saw an ambulance. I saw police cars. I saw my pastor. And I'd been to that scene. I'd been to that scene a hundred times, John, not in that car, not that person, but I'd been the one standing outside waiting for that mother, trying to figure out how I was going to talk to her. And the only shock for me was that her father was still alive. That in my perhaps not so Christian opinion, he didn't have the decency to, to also take his own life, frankly. And there really are moments where time stands still. And I'm a swimmer and I think about plunging into deep water and just the slow, quiet, cold. And that, that, was, that was that moment. You know, there were neighbors, there were gossipy onlookers. I thought these people knew that my child was gone before I did. And I remember as we drove to the rental house where I was staying, which was five or 10 minutes away, desperately texting people. It was like I had to say it because it was so unbelievable that she's gone. He's, he's murdered my baby. She's gone. And I think about my friends who 
were on the other end of those texts. Friends who adored Gabrielle were close to her and what that was even like for them to receive such horrific information on the other end. But the other thing I remember was Googling Job, knowing the verse, not verbatim, and wanting to know it. Though he slay me, yet do I trust him. I was clear that the person I knew and married, which is why, frankly, I use a fictitious name in the book, because I just won't give energy. That person isn't here anymore. That whatever it was that God had for me to do in this world was so powerful that the devil came to me with everything he had. So that verse began foundationally what led to the book, what was a rallying cry. It was a declaration of war that I was not going to be taken out. That, that, that I, I, I would never understood was, I mean, the, the pain, the, the shock, the, the days and weeks and months and years that followed, we could do a series of shows on, but I was determined to try to comprehend why I was still here. Why was I still here? Thank you for sharing your heart and for enduring that first night and the second night and now five years almost of nights that have followed. So let's get into that battle cry a little bit, this battle cry of though he slays me. You know, I still believe, I still, I still trust. Why do you think you are still here? Why, why do you think that a woman whose only desire, truly, candidly, was to be a mom and to be a great mom, and you were, and you raised a great daughter, and she was, she was the best of you, and then this person, this evil, corrupt person takes the best of you away from you. Take us forward into now, like what, what kept you moving on day one and day two, and now keeps you moving into the days to come. I think sometimes, and this is where I think faith and hope intersect, you know, there's a lot of platitudes of, you know, God gives you nothing you can't handle and everything happens for a reason. And just for a moment of levity, I remember when my mom died, my brother saying to me very quietly, at the funeral home, if one more person tells me that she's in a better place, I'm going to send them there. <laughs> um, so I say that to say, people say, and, and my, my first cousin who I adore, who's a minister coming to me originally and saying, people are going to say a lot of stupid things in God's name. You know, they mean well. I have a picture in my office of a woman blindfolded walking off of a cliff and there's raging waters beneath and there's just the outline of a hand you know this hand she hasn't reached it yet and so that's where I think my faith was there that this God God didn't do this this was this wasn't this was about evil that there are evil forces in the universe the way there are positive wonderful forces in the universe and you know, initially I, I, I wanted to try to comprehend the why, you know, there were literal criminal things I had to deal with. I was dealing with child protective services, checking to see if my child had gone to school and to the dentist and to the doctor, you know, there was my own personal safety. You know, I had to get a PO box. Um, I had to overnight change my will and my beneficiary, you know, things that just in the midst of everything, this blur of just 
the criminality of it all, right? And, and the unknown of, of what was happening, what could happen. But God was still God. And I started reading Job that next morning. I started reading Job that next morning. Job didn't deserve, Job didn't deserve what happened to him. And I don't for a minute compare myself to Job or, or, or anyone in the Bible, but it was the, it was the, the complete demolition of my life. It was the only thing that I had reference point to what was to think about Job. And so yet originally was a bit of a, you know, if I make this PG 13 for a minute, a bit of a, a bit of a middle finger salute to the devil that I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> I insisted I wore white at Gabrielle's funeral. Gabrielle wore white. Barbara was with her. And after we had the viewing, you know, I remember the funeral director saying, you know, you don't, you don't need to be there when we close the casket. And I said, no, I was the first person she touched. I'm going to be the last person. And me taking Barbara out of the casket before I closed it and looking at this audience of thousands of people and not knowing who was, you know, knowing certainly who was in the audience, but not knowing, you know, there was so much I didn't know. I mean, this was completely, you know, there was no violence. There was no threat of violence. There was nothing about this that was possible what had occurred. I needed to declare before anyone that was listening that God was still God and that I was grateful that I had this little girl. And the last thing I said on that stage at that pulpit was though he slay me yet do I trust him. It's an, an amazing story and it's hard to read. It's hard to hear. And yet there's so much faith, so much grit, so much redemption, so much love and surprisingly so much joy in, in your heart, in your words, in your story. There's also an awful lot of the type of courage I don't know if I could have shown. So not only being there when the casket shuts, not only wearing white when I don't even know if I could leave the house, not only praising God when I'm not sure if I could, sincerely. You do all those things, and it's an amazing, epic story. You also do something that I don't know if I could have done, which is to face the murderer, to face evil in the courtroom. Why did you choose? You didn't have to. Why did you choose that? And what did you say? I'm going to start by saying that I'm going to guess since you were nine years old, you've had people say, I can't imagine. <laughs> right. Just a couple times. I can't imagine. Right. Why, why wouldn't you give up? How could you, the strength, the courage. And so you certainly know, like I know it's different circumstances for sure. Right. We, we, we all have different crosses to bear but you are given what you need. You're given what you need. I don't have any supernatural powers. I don't believe that, you know, but God, there, 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 that, you know, I, I remember joking at one point with my editor and saying, this could be a really short book, God, <laughs> the end, right? I, I, one word, drop the mic. Like there's, there is no way a woman who desired nothing more than to be a mom who was the class mom while working full time and the cookie mom who made sure we sold enough boxes to get her the patch. And I mean, there is no way this woman who loses her mom that she was terrified of losing her whole life. There's no, re there's no reason for me to still be here, but God, yeah. I started to feel early on that there were literal holes in my body and that 
God was using those holes for light to shine through. And maybe not for me. I would get letters from people who were at the funeral calls. I had people say, you know what? I hadn't prayed in years. And then I heard you speak. Friends of friends of friends who were praying for me, people I'd never met. And so two things happened at the same time. I became a testimony. My test became a testimony for other people. God was able to show up in such a powerful way in the love and selflessness of others. The way I saw when I watched volunteers who said it doesn't happen here, go comb through the woods looking for a missing child, you know, strangers who showed up with casseroles, people who were just acquaintances who all of the sudden became dear friends, friends who went to the house that I lived in that was a crime scene and tried to figure out delicately how to video things for me to decide what to take. I don't know what they saw. So, so God did two things. He used me as a message and he allowed me to see that in our darkest, most vulnerable places, if we will just allow God to do what God does, that's, those are the miracles. That's, that's where the miracles happen. Part of that requires us faithfully shutting our eyes, going back to the picture that hangs in your office. Yes, yes. You step out of your apartment. You step into a courtroom. You mm-hmm. step up to a microphone mm-hmm. and you look into a murderer's eyes. You know, you've been behind the camera in the control room doing this kind of work before, but now it's, now it's the cameras looking at you. What did you want to make sure that this person knew about you and about what you were going to do with this loss going forward? The most important thing to me, and I want to say that I was incredibly blessed to have an amazing therapist, an amazing pastor, an amazing support group. No one's an island. Tremendous preparation. You know, I went from not being able to hear his name or his voice to look at images of of things that had been on the news, to really training like a fighter, to be able to literally be in space with him. I mean, this could be a completely different thing about the legal system, but my child was murdered on June 6th. I wasn't granted a divorce until fall of 2019. So not only did I have to deal with court from a criminal perspective, I had two years of matrimony court where I was fighting to get divorced from this man. So I was training for a marathon. My dad says often he is grateful for my fight and my faith. And that fight said, I'll be damned if I crumble, if I blink first. And that I was going, you know, there was so much I had no control over. So much, you know, simple things like the things in my child's room that became evidence in an evidence lab that after the 50th time of them explaining it to me, I finally understood I'd never get back. What I could control was how I showed up for her and how I spoke her name. And I was determined that what happened to her would never be as powerful as the message of her life and what her life would represent. While he never looked at me, I was going to sit up straight, poised, sweating through my suit again, but no one could see hopefully and speak on behalf of my child. And you know, what should have been, you know, open and shut case became someone who said they were not guilty, would not plead guilty you know, led to a doctor questioning her health. 
you know, and whether this could have been natural causes. So it was the extreme of an extraordinary situation. But all that mattered was that I was showing up for my daughter. You continue to show up for your daughter and, uh, but God keeps showing up to uh, be a testament for those around you. Talk about Gabriel's wings. What's the, what's the genesis of this? And what, what do you hope to accomplish through this organization? So Gabrielle's wings started, you know, people wanted to do something when this horrific thing happened. And um, as I mentioned earlier, my parents had a foundation that they had started years ago called the Horde Foundation. Initially, I said, listen, if people want to do something, donate funds to the Horde Foundation. And within six weeks, we raised $150,000. And then I realized the mission of my parents' foundation is amazing. It's helping African-American students go to college, but my baby was seven. And so what was important to me was how could I offer children in underserved communities the types of opportunities my child was going to have, whether that was swim lessons at the Y or cultural enrichment or the things that, that were not going to be a factor for her because I was going to ensure that are the gaps for so many children that look like her. So Gabrielle's Wings is all about trying to stand in the gap for those children, focused on those elementary age children where, where all the research tells us those are those formative years that make all the difference. As you can see in my background, um, this was one of our first projects, Gabrielle's Playground, which is a quarter million dollar playground um, built for children of all abilities that has elements for children of varying physical abilities, emotional abilities, was to be inclusive and to try to bring joy to children. And butterflies became our theme and our signal. I have my earrings. I try to be on message um, <laughs> because like most little girls, my kid loved butterflies, but there was also the, the power of the chaos theory or the butterfly effect, which simply stated says that just the flap of a butterfly wing, you know, how something small can create an incredible impact. And so that's what we, we want to try to be in the lives of children. And hopefully that helps children soar, right? Like a butterfly, hopefully Gabriel's wings can do work that will give children those tools to be that, that wind beneath their wings. So that's our focus now. The book came out two days ago, and I could ask you what, what the readers are saying about it, what the, your friends who have read it are saying about it, what your family is saying about it. I'll tell you what I'm saying about it. It's remarkable, and everybody should check it out. But when you go through the agony of the loss that you've endured, much of it publicly, and a whole lot of it privately, then you write this book. When someone hears your podcast, like you're offering your time up with us today, or they check out the other side of yet, what, what's the one thing that you hope they might receive from, um, from that investment in time in your story? That I am just like them, that all of us, if, if nothing else, the last two years in COVID created a, a universal before. Hmm. And my book is divided into before, yet, and after. So we all have befores, whether that's, I thought I was going to have children and I couldn't, I'm getting a divorce, I've lost my job. We all have these, these pivotal moments in our lives where what we thought life was looks different at varying degrees, right? 
And COVID is such a, a great example because until the day people were asked to wear masks or, or were staying at home or doing jobs that you never could do remotely, but they were doing remotely, those things weren't possible. And all of a sudden, something that's not possible becomes possible and it shakes you at your core. And so what I want people to take away beyond a verse in Job, yet to me became a weapon to say, yes, this happened. Yet there can be more. And whatever that more is, does not in any way take away from the before. The before is still the before. I miss my child every minute of every day. I have pictures of her everywhere. If I could turn my laptop, you would see Barbara's right here. Barbara's going to need an agent after all of this, by the way. I can't even tell you. She's really getting to be quite the uh, diva. Um, but I think what's so important for people to realize is I think life is a series of these cycles. There isn't just one yet. There are probably life-changing pivotal yets in our lives. But if we're willing to be brave enough to say, yet there can be more, yet I will still try, yet I will imagine a future, there's so much more life and joy and happiness and love out there for you. Yes. Uh, years ago, I tried to remove the word but from my vocabulary. Not with the two T's. That one's still in there, but the one with the <laughs> one midway through most sentences. And I try to replace it either with the word ands, which is a mm -hmm. lovely word, or the word yet, which mm -hmm. is such a beautiful life-giving word that you have spoken life into. Is there, I don't know if you have the book with you right now. Is it, is it in your lap by any chance? Is it near Barbara? I have it close by. I have it close by. Yes. Whether it's a poem, a passage, a section from your book that you're drawn to read right now uh, on air. So if there's anything, Michelle, that you would love to share with us as I get ready to wrap up with the seven questions that tether all of our guests together. I would, I would love to hear from you in your own words. The trial was delayed. The criminal trial was delayed and delayed and delayed. And I woke up at 6 a.m. the morning of the first day of the trial and I wrote this piece. So the chapter is called Return to Your Roots. It begins, I hear them say in my sleep, it is what we've always done and you have always made it through. Capture, fear, injustice, violence, the middle passage, doing whatever love and desperation demand necessary to protect and save and survive. Loving and laughing and praying in ways that frighten and confuse those who would mistake it with simpleness or voodoo magic or ignorance. Those mere mortals who never understood that the rhythm and movement which our hearts and souls cry out are from other skins, under other suns. Sounds of drum and chant and melody preparing us for the ritual of battle, a fight for justice, a secret midnight path to freedom. It is what we've always done, prayed, make a way out of no way, thanked Jesus anyhow, held on to oral traditions and history and passed it down so the other generation would also know when their time came, caring close to breast and bone and spirit, that they too were descendants of royalty, of fighters, of survivors, the in spite of, those people who hope against hope, pain against pain, weakness against weakness, fear against fear, would do what we have always done. Look at nature for our signs and songs, Look to God for our hope and mercy. 
look to generations of ancestors possessing nothing and everything who walked as giants among simple and cowering men. We will do what we've always done, stand on the shoulders of a thousand soldiers. Can't you hear them? My child, the time has come. And I wrote that the morning, the first day of the trial, and it was a bit of a personal battle cry. Sounds like you're borrowing from those who battled before you and will battle long after you, but who uh, battle together faithfully. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, for, for my friends who uh, have been moved from this conversation today, and I don't know how you could listen in and not be deeply moved, where can they learn more about where they can find this book? Oh, thank you. Well, they can find it everywhere. I have a website, which is michelledhoard.com. Um, but it's thankfully on sale at all major bookstores and places where you find books, the other side of yet. As we wrap up this conversation on the other side of yet with the author of that beautiful, not only book, but life. And by the way, we, we chatted for a fairly long time and just just scratch the surface of the book and the beauty and the loss and the longing and the joy and the hope and the beautiful things that have come out of this story. So I really do encourage folks to check out the other side of yet, but we wrap up every conversation with our friends with seven questions. They are called the live inspired seven. So Michelle, question number one, my friend is this, what has been the most impactful book you have ever read? Their eyes were watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And I read it every year for years. And it was because it was a story about, it was a coming of age story about a woman who was trying to really figure out what love was. And it took her three marriages to get it right, but she finally got it right. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Indiana and then Michigan and then, all, and then onward from there that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I was an incredible dreamer, had an incredible creative imagination. And I'm going to half answer your question because I think it went away for a long, long time. And I think that God is somehow bringing that back in me now. Thank you. I hope it continues to multiply. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, one thing, what would you race back in and save? Barbara. Barbara. It's easy. Barbara's Gabrielle's doll. <laughs> Barbara's going to want her own designer bag soon, but no, you know, and, and in all honesty, because she is a physical manifestation of memory of my daughter. The background story of, of even that question is I one time stumbled into it and a, a woman who was like an heiress, her family was part mm -hmm. of a billion dollar business, went back in to save a plastic statuette. I think of, of, of Jesus. So I said, God, you buy a new one. You know, why would you not just buy a new one? And she said, oh, John, you don't understand. And then she talked about the poverty they grew up in and how they had nothing, but they mm -hmm. had faith and they had this one little statue on the kitchen windowsill. It went from grandmother to mother and now to me. And if I lost everything, I would run in to be reminded we can rebuild it. Mm -hmm. So when you share this idea of running in for a doll, yeah, it's not the doll. It's everything that that little doll represents, including the, the beautiful joy that continues to live on. So thank you. Thank you for saving little Barbara. We get it. Yes. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who do you want to be seated next to? My daughter, my daughter. 
I hear her in the wind and in the waves and in my dreams, but it would be a joy to sit with her for even five minutes. Mm. What's the best advice your daughter or anyone else that you've looked up to ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Everyone deserves their crazy half hour. I talk about it a little bit in the book, but I had a high school guidance counselor when we moved to Connecticut and I was you know, pretty sure it was to ruin my life. Say, listen, kid, everybody gets their crazy half hour. And, and, and my interpretation of that is feel what you feel, give yourself the space, and then get going. <laughs> Beautiful advice. Uh, one that I need to hear from time to time as well. What, what advice would you whisper into your 20 year old self? So what, what advice mm. would you offer to yourself at age 20? To try to live in the moment that all of your plans and your hopes and your dreams and your fears may be way off. And so hold on to and be grateful for what you see and have right now. Mm. Michelle Horde, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? She chooses every day to fight to find joy and love and hope and light in the darkness. Mm. And she reminds the rest of us that we can do likewise, that the struggles come, the storms blow, yet there is reason for hope and the best is yet to come. So Michelle, I want to thank you for taking the time to spend part of your day, two days into launch with us. And I want to thank you for reminding us that indeed the struggles are real. The headwind is fierce, but God is still God and the best is yet to come. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed it. My friends, this is Michelle Horde. She's the author of the new book. It just came out called The Other Side of Yet. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. On the front side of the conversation with Michelle, I forewarned you that in preparing for today's conversation, I cried. I probably should have let you know the truth. I wept like a baby. I was so moved by what she went through, by the struggles she faced, the struggles she continues to face, her courage, her zeal for her daughter, her zeal for life, and her zeal to not allow her husband to take that passion from her going forward. For me, this was the most moving conversation that I can remember having. There's been many stories that have been inspiring, many that have been tragic, Many of our dear friends have lost loved ones along the journey. They've all moved me deeply. And my friends, I'm sure they've moved you deeply as well. But the subtleness and the sweetness and the toughness and the tenacity and the faithfulness with which Michelle shared her story today, it just grabbed my heart. I'm sure it grabbed yours too. If you would like to continue on in this story, what I recommend is checking out Michelle's new book. It is absolutely worth checking out. It is available in all bookstores. It just came out this week. It is called The Other Side of Yet. I read it cover to cover. It's a masterpiece. You will enjoy it. Check it out. And if you want to learn more about grief, about recovery, and about taking the absolute worst in life and doing something mighty with it going forward, not only in your life, but also in the life of others. Let me encourage you to check out a conversation that I had with a dear friend of mine. His name is Steve Grant. 
Steve Grant lost both of his boys due to drug overdose. And rather than letting those losses be the end of the story, Steve has spent the last 12 years, 12 years, ensuring that others will not have to go through the same pain, the same loss, the same tragedy that he and his family faced. You can learn more about Steve's journey and his recovery and what he learned and what it means for you and me and your family by checking out episode 120. Anywhere that you grab your Live Inspired podcast, consider checking out that one. Steve's a dear friend of mine. It is an amazing story, and it's one ultimately that will inspire you that no matter what you face, through faithfulness, through courage, and by leaning into those around you, you can ensure that the pain is not wasted and the best is yet to come. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. I want to thank you for checking out the Live Inspired podcast in a marketplace that is seemingly so divided, so negative, filled with so much evil and tragedy, there is plenty of evidence reminding us that God is still God. The headwind may be real, but the best days indeed remain in front of us. I want to thank you again for being part of our family. We love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift, the gift of life. Choose to live inspired. Well, Healy Company's culture sets them apart, and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keely Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keeley Cares by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com.